Welcome to Raised on D&D Podcast. Raised on D&D brings you inspirational interviews with tips and strategies to enrich your family's gaming experience. Your host for Raised on D&D has been a dungeon master for over 30 years and a father to three gamers. Here is Nick Cartarelli. Welcome back, gamers. I'm your host, Nick Cartarelli, and this is Based on D&D. My next guest is originally from Massachusetts, but has been living in Seattle since the late 90s. He is the founder and president of Green Ronin Publishing. He was the lead designer of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 2nd Edition. He designed the Adventure Game Engine, which now powers most of Green Ronin's RPGs. He's currently working on the new core rulebook for Fantasy Age, Please welcome Chris Pramus. Hi, Chris. Hello. Thanks so much for being on the show. Well, happy to be here. How old were you when you started gaming? And, and, and can you tell us a little bit about how it first got going? Yeah, sure. Uh, so it was 1979. <laughs> uh, I was 10 years old. And um, my mother uh, was reading like the Sunday newspaper. Um, and there was one of those uh, like... Uh, magazine insert things like parade or something like that um she read an article about uh, this thing that these crazy college students were doing called dungeons and dragons and i was already reading fantasy and stuff like that my mom was like hey you know this sounds like it'd be up your alley like maybe you should check it out and so i grew up in a town called peabody in massachusetts and so um, we went uh, next door to salem I went to a hobby store called Eric Fuchs and then got the white boxed set for D&D. And that was my, my entryway. It turned out the white box set wasn't great for introducing a 10 year old to D&D because, <laughs> uh, you know, essentially it was written for 60s war game scene people and not 10 year olds. We moved on and got the Holmes basic set. Uh, and that's really when when my brother and I started to role play. Now, and, now the Holmes the Holmes basic set. Mm-hmm. Now that was uh, keep on the Borderlands, wasn't it? I had the uh, one of the earlier printings that was B one in search of the B1. unknown. In search <laughs> of the unknown, yeah, beautiful. Okay, so all the way back to B one, and so. Now, is this your younger brother, your older brother? Older brother. Okay, and how much older was he? Uh, you, were, you were 10 at the time, so he was around 13? Yeah. Who was the dungeon master? Um, so he had some friends um, who had also started to play, and so um, my first games were with them. So uh, it was a, another guy. Um, I don't remember his name. Jared, I think, uh, was the first uh, game master. We used to meet at the Peabody Public Library and uh, and play in the library uh, till we were thrown out for being too raucous. <laughs> so, <laughs> too much fun at the library, apparently. That, uh, that is fantastic. So fast forwarding, when did you decide that you were going to create your own gaming company? Oh, that, that's fast forwarding a lot. Uh, so... In the early 90s, uh, I started to do freelance work, writing for Mayfair Games. Uh, they had just released a game by Ray Winninger called Underground, and uh, my first paid work was uh, working on some of the supplements for that. Um, and doing that let, you know, basically got me 
uh, into the industry. I was able to get freelance work at a bunch of other companies over the next few years. Uh, and so then in uh, 95, I guess it was, uh, I started my first company, uh, which was called Ronin Publishing, uh, was the predecessor to the Green Ronin. You know, basically, you know, I wanted to do my own thing is, is <laughs> the, uh, the short of it. Um, I, uh, you know, I was heavily involved in the punk rock scene. Punk has a huge DIY aesthetic. And so it just made sense to me to try to start my own thing. Um, now, I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, and that first company uh, was a failure, but I learned a lot and was able to apply those lessons later when I started Green Ronin. What is the significance of the Green Ronin? Like, was he a character of yours in a campaign? What, what, what is the significance there? Uh, so uh, this relates to my first company. So uh, uh, at Ronin Publishing, there were three of us uh, who started the company. And we had the idea that, that each one of us would take an email address uh, that was color-coded. So of the three of us, I was the Green Ronin. But then, of course, yeah, you know, we had a simple idea to do that. But then one of the guys didn't even follow through and uh, and picked a different screen. <laughs> so <laughs> didn't even really work. But anyway, that was my email address, uh, and it was um, I used it on all like the game industry mailing lists and things. And so uh, when I was starting Green Ronin, I wanted to do a company that people in the industry would understand was me without calling it Chris Premis Games because I didn't feel egotistical enough to be <laughs> Chris Premis Games. <laughs> Typical of me, I overthought it and uh, and ended up uh, going with Green Rooney. So that's, that's how that all happened. <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank you. Fast forwarding a little bit further, mm -hmm. you're married and you're a dad. Is that right? Uh, stepfather, yeah. Okay. How many children do you have? Uh, just one, uh, Kate. And um, how old's Kate now? She is 24. Okay. How old would you say she was when you introduced her to role-playing games? Uh, I would say probably five. We've had, you know, we had this long-running uh, game night uh, at our place um, that started in, I don't know, 1998 or something like that. And um, so, you know, when Kate grew up, like every week, you know, we had people over the house for game night and, you know, we'd have food and drinks and role play and so on. And so it, it was just like part of the pace of life, you know, around the house. So it was natural that she wanted to, to participate. So uh, at, a, at a certain point, um, you know, we let her uh, start making characters. So. What were you playing at that time? Do you remember? Uh, so this was the early 2000s. And uh, in, in the early years of Green Renine, we were mostly doing uh, D20 system stuff, which was, you know, third edition D&D, &D, essentially. Um, so that's what we were playing, because we were playtesting a lot of stuff and so on. So, but she, you know, she had a big influence from Pokemon, because she's of that generation. Yes. Uh, and so when she first made a character, she was, uh, you know, trying to tell us what she wanted. And she basically wanted to play um, <laughs> like a duck. <laughs> um, but she was like, oh, I want to have a swim attack. Um, and then she wanted to have, uh, a, oh, and then a quack attack also. Uh, and for some reason, she wanted the bill of her duck to be invisible. She wanted that to be like a, 
<laughs> Not the rest of her, just the build. So. Yeah, as the dungeon master, you let build that character and, and yeah. run with it. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, she was young, so she was going to bed, uh, you know, relatively early. So, you know, she'd play with us a little bit, and then she would go to bed. And then when she was older, she started making more <laughs> more traditional characters. And that and that's really fantastic because a lot a lot of my guests and and myself included we started off real young and those those short little bursts uh, of half an hour hour then work it up to two hour game sessions and making it a party food drinks mm-hmm. uh, friends and family over it makes a huge impact on children when it's a special event and it's something that can be given to them in bite sizes until they're. Uh, of an age where they can sit through a whole session. Your wife is also a gamer, is that right? Yeah, uh, yeah. my wife, Nicole, she's uh, one of the, the three uh, owners of Green Ranine uh, as well. Uh, and she actually, uh, she started in the game industry before I did. Um, she was very young, she was like 18. Um, she got in with uh, Lion Rampant, who was the original publisher of Ars Magica. Um, wow. And then when they merged with White Wolf Magazine to form White Wolf Game Studio, she moved from Minnesota down to Georgia and was one of the very first uh, White Wolf staff people. And then she did the graphic design for Vampire First Edition. So that was wow. all before I got in, in the business. So she's already in the industry um, yeah. and she's a big gamer and you're doing freelance work. How does this all come together? Do you mind telling us how you and Nicole meet? Um, well, um, amusingly, we met by getting into a fight online. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so back in that era, um, I mean, you wouldn't guess it now, but uh, at the time, there was a big gaming community on America Online, um, and they had a whole series of these uh, like rooms you could go into um, and, you know, people ran games, but there was also a lot of discussion and stuff like that. And uh, um, if you were in the industry, uh, there was a guy at AOL, you know, who would comp you an account so you could interact with the fans and all this sort of stuff. Wow. So, um, so one of the discussion boards was women in gaming. And so I was just in there one day. Uh, a subtopic popped up that was like homosexuality in gaming. And there were these... Um, these dudes being um, <laughs> shitty uh, about gay people and gaming and stuff. And so I started to argue with them um, that they were being shitty. And Nicole was like, hey, I'm, you know, totally on your side, but the venue you're having this conversation is is inappropriate because this is the women in gaming folder. <laughs> uh, but I was... Um, you know, in the middle of a fight. So, you know, I kept arguing and then uh, she sort of like laid down the law and actually created a new folder uh, and was like, here, you can continue your argument in this new venue that I have made that is more appropriate. Um, And I realized I had been uh, a little bit of a jerk. So I apologized to her. I actually recognized her name from the credits of Ars Magica books. So I was like, hey, are you the Nicole Linders from Ars Magica? She was like, yes, I am. And so we just started up, you know, an online friendship. Um, and we wouldn't meet until several years later at, uh, at one Gen Con. That is 
Incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, it's, it's, you got mail meets Gen Con. It's, it's wonderful. Um, so thank you. So you've made such amazing products, as I mentioned before, and uh, it just keeps getting better. Um, Fantasy Age is one of the, uh, well, you, now you have several lines, right? You have Fantasy yeah. Age, and then you have Modern Age. And what, what else is there? Um, Blue Rose, uh, mm -hmm. which uses the Fantasy Age rules, but with a, a, a spoke setting. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, The Expanse also uses uh, Adventure Game Engine. Um, yes. And now The Expanse is based on the sci-fi channel television show, The Expanse, which now has a, is it a third, fourth season on Amazon Prime? Is that yeah. correct? Uh, so technically our license is from the novels, not the show. Um, okay. Okay. So I have to be uh, clear about that for legal reasons. <laughs> yes, of course. So, so fan, fans of the show and fans of the book um, now can role play in that setting uh, using, and that also uses the uh, age system. Is that correct? correct? Yeah. So yeah, if you've played any age game, you know, you already know most of the rules for the expanse. Although obviously to, to do sci-fi, there were things we needed to add. So. Well, uh, there are folks listening who have yet to try the age system. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us just a little bit how it's maybe different from um, other game systems that people may have played? Uh, sure. The um, Really the big um, defining feature of the age system that sets it apart is what's called the stunt system. Um, so in the game, um, you use 3d6 as resolution. So you roll 3d6, add an ability, and then try to hit a target number generally. Um, and so when you're doing things, uh, if you roll doubles on those 3d6, um, then, and you succeed in what you're trying to do, uh, then you generate stunt points. Uh, so like one of those dice is an off-colored die uh, called variously a dragon die or a stunt die or a drama die. Um, and that generates a number of stunt points. And then depending on the sort of encounter that you're in, uh, there's then like a menu of stunts that you can do. So uh, it started with just combat stunts. Um, it's, its beginnings was sort of as like a dynamic critical hit system. Mm -hmm. um, but then we added role-playing stunts and exploration stunts, and there are now chase stunts and spell stunts and all kinds of stuff. Um, and basically you get to... Uh, spend the, uh, the points, you spend them right away. We don't bank them or anything like that. And so if you have like four points, you can do one four-point stunt or one three-point stunt and one one-point stunt or two two-point stunts, you know, however you want to do it. So you pick your stunts and then you basically narrate like the cool stuff that you just pulled off. Um, and because you are rolling doubles almost half the time uh, when you're rolling the dice, it's not like oh, I rolled a 20, you know, like on a D20, so I have a 5% chance of something cool happening. Like, cool things happen all the time. So um, it's uh, it's fun. People like it. <laughs> it. It is wonderful, and we love it. Um, when they roll doubles, just to hear the children at the table, or, or even uh, when I get together with my adult friends, um, and we're sitting around the table, and someone rolls doubles, and everybody yells, doubles i mean i mean that that energy that it gives and i like i like 
a story driven, I like a cinematic game. So mm-hmm. when you have that dynamic of some, the, the uh, frequent opportunity of the heroes doing something, well, heroic, uh, and doubles allows you to do that and getting those stunt points and being able to say, oh, I'm going to spend it this way. And you notice that the players become so much more engaged because they are, they're looking at the options and they're going, oh, I, I really want to do this in this scenario. And uh, it just it, anything that builds up the energy around the game table makes it more dynamic keeps the flow going and gets them excited and out of their seats um, is a win, win, win every day at the game table. And, uh, and so that system that you designed uh, has given us hours of enjoyment with amazing, amazing uh, energy. And, uh, and we love it. So thank you for that. Awesome. I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> You're coming out with a new core rule book for fantasy age. So mm-hmm. What are the big things that are going to get revamped? What, what, what can fans of Fantasy Age expect to see tweaked in this new edition? Uh, well, so basically, um, you know, the Age system started with Dragon Age, then it mm-hmm. was spun off to Fantasy Age. Um, and then we've done all these subsequent games, and each of them has introduced, you know, new facets of game mechanics and things like that. And so... Um, for the Fantasy Age Cool Rulebook, we wanted to to take some of the stuff that had appeared in other games and uh, and you know sort of bring it full circle uh, by putting that into Fantasy Age. Um, and also the um, I mean the basic rulebook it was put together so fast because it was essentially exists because of Titan's Grave, which is what you Mm -hmm. mentioned before. Um, Because when, when Will Wheaton approached me about doing that show, you know, he wanted to use the Dragon Age rules because he really liked them. But obviously, you know, we were going to create this science fantasy setting for the show. So we couldn't point people to the Dragon Age rule book. And we had been discussing spinning off, the rules anyway because a lot of people liked the engine but didn't necessarily want to play in Thetis. So, um, uh, but it just meant that it all had to happen very, very quickly. <laughs> and so, so the basic rule book get, gets the job done, but, uh, you know, it, it did not have an intrinsic setting to it, you know, as an example to people. So we decided with the core rule book, uh, we're going to take our classic uh, Freeport fantasy setting um, and uh, put that into the core rule book. So uh, while you you can still use the rules for whatever setting you care for, there will at least be an example setting uh, provided, and then we'll expand that in various ways. Well, we loved titan's grave we i think it came out i want to say on tuesdays maybe um i'm not i don't remember exactly because it's been a while but the whole family would gather around and we would watch it each episode we loved the art we we loved will wheaton's uh gming style all yeah, of it was he was a really good gm and we just we just had a wonderful time enjoying it everyone had their own favorite character from the show things like that so it really brought the family together so when titan's grave was offered as a setting and the fantasy age uh, was put out 
we had to get it. They, they said, we have to do it. We have to play in it, those kind of things. So we, we absolutely fell in love with the show. Now, what, what was it like when you first saw the, the enthusiasm, the excitement, and the fans coming to you saying, I need a copy of this. Well, when am I getting it? Where, how can I get it? You know, that kind of thing. What, 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 was, that, what was that like? Uh, well, it was, what was cool about it is that, uh, is that we debuted Fantasy Age and the Titan's Grave Adventure book together at Gen Con that year. So basically we filmed the show in, I think it was March of that year. Um, and then it began to air over the summertime, I think in June, maybe. By the time Gen Con came around, people were really invested in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were able to, uh, to have both books for sale, you know, 10 a.m. Thursday at Gen Con. And we just had a mob of people, um, you know, show up. Uh, to to snap it up, and so you know, it's it's one thing to release a game through regular channels, and you people start commenting online, but it's it's really another to see like a giant line of people at your booth, you know, like lined up to get the thing that you made. So that was pretty nice. Um, and Will was there as well, so we could enjoy it together. <laughs> that was fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. You have a game coming out this month. Sword Chronicle is feudal fantasy role-playing. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit more about Sword Chronicle? Yeah, we used to have the Game of Thrones license. And so for many years, uh, we published a game called uh, Song of Ice and Fire Role-Playing, uh, designed by Rob Schwab. Our license for that ended a few years ago. We still have the system, um, which is called the Chronicle system, that we had designed specifically for that game. People have been requesting the, you know, spin that system off in the same way that Fantasy Age came from Dragon Age. You know, they wanted Chronicle to be spun off from Song of Ice and Fire. Um, so that's the basic idea of Sword Chronicle. Um, we had already started to do a series of Chronicle system um, PDF supplements um, that added things that, that weren't in Song of Ice and Fire, like gunpowder and magic and, you know, things like that. Um, so we already had some material that existed, um, but uh, Malcolm Shepard, one of our developers, uh, suggested as a, a response, actually, to the, the COVID crisis, um, where because yeah, that was, has had a big impact on our business, um, that putting together Sword Chronicle uh, would be something we could do relatively quickly because the rules exist <laughs> um, and uh, and the people might like and that we could make money off of. So uh, that's how that all kind of came together. Fantastic. So you had the Game of Thrones license. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, we're referring to the books, not the show. Is that right? Yes, correct. Okay. Um, so yeah, we, uh, we had the license from 2008 something like that, 2007. Um, and uh, yeah, we never could have afforded it uh, if the show had come out first. So right. we were very lucky that, that we had this existing license and then the show happened. So we were able to uh, kind of piggyback on that to some degree, uh, which was nice. <laughs> the surprising thing about The Expanse was that that we, we were able to get that license after the show was on the air. And I just figured it would be off the table, but uh, but it turns out both Ty and Daniel 
who write the Expanse are gamers themselves, and they wanted an RPG, so that's how that happened. I participated in that Kickstarter, and that was so exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about the Expanse Kickstarter and what that was like for you, just watching that number climb every day? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, what, and, and, tell, and, and tell our listeners, how long did it take to get funded? Because it was a ridiculously short amount of time. Yeah, it was, um, I don't know, it was like two hours or something like that. Was, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very quick. Um, yeah, well, there's uh, there's a real um, um, thrill to a Kickstarter that, that just starts to go. Because uh, whenever you're about to run one of these, it's it's always the question, you know? Like, you, you never know, um, like is it going to take off and go viral and da 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 or, you know, because you can have two projects that are nearly identical and one will take off and one doesn't. And it's very difficult to identify like, you know, why did this one go and this one didn't go? So um, anyway, uh, you know, there was a lot of, of pent up uh, demand for an expanse RPG. It, it just went and Ty and Daniel were great about helping us promote it. You know, they were willing to, to do things. I wouldn't, really have expected them to be willing to do like write new fiction for us you know there's a short story that starts the core rule book that you know it's that's the only place it appears uh so wow that is amazing so original fiction Mm -hmm. and you can only get it in the core book for the expanse rpg that's yeah. incredible. Chris, a lot of our listeners are parents. Um, they're, they're traditional gamer parents like you and I who started gaming as teens, grew up, had families, and started to share the love of gaming with their families. But there is a growing number of gamer families where the parents have had zero experience with RPGs. Sometimes tweens or teens are discovering Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games, tabletop gaming in general, and they're bringing it home or they're telling their parents about it and saying, I, I want to get this. And the parents, to my, my surprise, have been going out and trying to find and learn all that they can so that they can run games for their families. So Chris, can you, can you give our listeners some advice uh, partly it depends on um, on how old the kids are, I guess. Um, we, we published a game, uh, God, 15 years ago, something like that, um, called Fairy's Tale. Um, and it was meant to be a game that, uh, that adults would play with younger children. Um, that is uh, out of print uh, uh, at the moment. And it was, the rules were a little more complicated than I think that they probably should have been. Um, so for younger kids, I mean, I would look at No Thank You Evil by Monty Cook Games. Um, that gives that's, uh, I think Shauna really pitched that, you know, um, as a good experience for, uh, for younger kids. Um, you know, older kids, uh, I mean, you know, it would be probably easiest for them to play D&D simply because there are so many resources for that. But of course, you know, <laughs> There's so many role-playing games. <laughs> you know, um, there are many, many options for you know, depending on the genres they're interested in, and and you know all that. Um, you know, I will say that uh, I designed the adventure game engine uh, to to be a a game that could be your first RPG. 
uh, initially designed for our Dragon Age role-playing game. And you know, my specific self-assigned mission was I want to take video gamers and turn them into tabletop gamers. And so um, it was meant to be easy to, to learn and play. So uh, for you know teenagers, I mean, you, you could do a lot worse than <laughs> Dragon Age or Fantasy Age. Fantastic. Anything else you'd like to tell the folks listening at home about Green Ronin and the new things coming out? Uh, yeah, well, one of the things I, I uh, didn't get to as far as Sword Chronicle goes um, is that uh, we're also starting a uh, community content program for it. Um, so other publishers who want to publish compatible material will be able to do that. Uh, it's going to be called the Sword Chronicle Guild. Um, and we're shooting to, uh, to debut that concurrently with the rule book coming out. Um, but that is dependent on us working with some other companies. So, uh, hopefully we can pull that off. Um, and then we've also been working on a community content program for fantasy age and modern age, uh, called the age creators Alliance. Um, that should also, uh, start, um, this summer as well. So, people who are interested in publishing their own uh, fantasy age um, or modern age uh, settings or adventures uh, will be able to do so. And then uh, in the future, we are, uh, we're working on a role-playing game based on N.K. Jemisin's fifth season novels. Um, and that's also going to use the Chronicle system. So uh, that'll be another upcoming application of that. Uh, Generally, we've, we've got a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> that, that, is, that is so great. Green Ronin has been a huge source of wonderful games for my family personally. And we're so excited about the things that you've got coming down the pipe. We can't wait to try Sword Chronicle. And we're, we're really hoping that the folks listening at home are going to jump into the age system and uh, get to sit around the table and, and play those Chris, thank you again so much for being on the show today. Thank you for sharing with us your stories and thank you for all the great advice. Thanks for having me. It's been fun.